As Josh mentioned today, we are kicking off in the video, we're kicking off a three-year vision that we as elders are incredibly excited about. And I know that so many of you, if not all of you, uh, who have been here this past year had a hand in really shaping this vision and what is to come over the next three years. And we really truly believe that this is really coming from God's heart. Uh, so I'm excited that I get to like kind of kick off this three-year vision with... Uh, a sermon out of Isaiah 19. So if you want to just open up to Isaiah 19, this is where we're getting this one-day vision. Um, Isaiah 19, verses 16 to 25. As you're looking up the scriptures, uh, if you know me, you've heard me preach uh, over the last few years. Uh, for sure, I know, Heather, you're here. You know that I've been Isaiah has had a big impact uh, in our community group, and especially in my life. Uh, so, so Heather, you shouldn't be surprised that I'm preaching that Isaiah. Uh, but yes, um, I just uh, I have been meditating on this passage that I, I'm going to preach to you guys for over three years, um, and I'm going to have to hold myself to preach for 30 minutes now. Um, but I could really preach five or six different sermons out of each one of the points that I'm going to attempt to just give you. So this is going to be a quick overview, and I'm going to work really hard to not get sidetracked, uh, but I really encourage you over the next three years, uh, this could this is really an anchoring text for our church, uh, and I just, yeah, I just want to give you some more orientation to it and really encourage you to just dig into it and, and prayerfully just, you know, on a monthly basis or whatever, just kind of like revisit this passage. Um just want to give you a little bit of historical context before we kind of plunge into verse 16. Um, Isaiah was prophesying um, these prophecies in, in the 8th century before Christ, B.C., okay? So today, as we're like looking at this passage, this is something that was prophesied 2,800 years ago, okay? And that's why we're saying like one day, if you look at verse 16, it says in that day. Now, like it's been 2,800 years, so like let's start saying, like let's start making this thing happen now, okay? <laughs> we, we, we've waited a long time, uh, and so this is why like the urgency of this three-year plan uh, comes into focus. But uh, the big dominant powers that you're going to see in this passage that historically were dominating at that time were Egypt and Assyria. They were like the world powers, uh, and just very much like in today's world uh, political world, we have world powers trying to like uh, influence all the other nations in the world to gain more power, right? And very much Israel found itself in exactly the same place. They're being dominated by these world powers, and Israel uh, is really basically broken into like Israel and Judah, and they're just little nations that are having to navigate this complex wave of relationships, and they're just trying to exist. Okay, uh, so this is the context in which Isaiah is written. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see that Israel has to make a decision. Every, almost in every chapter and every story, when he's talking about Israel, the nation, and it, the decisions are basically this. Do we like form alliances with like other neighboring nations to like get stronger so we can actually like resist the other world powers. So there was a temptation to like always in this crisis moment to like go, let's make an alliance with Egypt, right? So they had to make, that's what choice one or choice two was rely solely on Yahweh for deliverance, 
right? And so you can kind of summarize the Old Testament. That's like it's like this battle between those two choices. And what do you think Israel did most of the time? If you read the Old Testament, right? They kind of chose the first one, right? Over and over and over and over. Israel, sometimes they didn't, but most of the time they chose alliances with other world powers to find protection. And so it is no surprise, and probably one of the main reasons why you don't like to read the prophets so much, is that there's so much judgment in those chapters. Like, literally, if you read before, uh, before chapter 18, 19, uh, just to like, peruse through those chapters. I mean, this is judgments against Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, small countries like Moab. I mean, it's just like everybody's going to be judged. Israel, everybody's going to get judged um, because of their sin, because of their allegiance with each other rather than allegiance to God. Uh, so this is the context that we find ourselves in. No nation, no people group are spared judgment. But look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. It says, in that day. So Isaiah is zooming out in this, in this little window here where he's just predicting judgment upon judgment upon judgment. He just zooms out and says, but there's good news. There's going to be this one day. And this is the language of the prophets. This language of one day, looking into the future, is something that all throughout Jeremiah, Isaiah, all the prophets use this language to really tell us that God is actively involved in the future. God is actively involved in shaping the future, influencing the future. God is not a distant God that's just letting things play out. No, no, no. There is a plan that God has. And so the prophets use that phrase, in that day, to refer to significant redemptive events that are about to happen. To refer to the transformative acts of grace upon the nations, upon the peoples of the world. And so this is the passage that we find ourselves in, in that day. And so I just want to highlight for you just several things that, like, that I, like, just really have popped to me, popped at me. Uh, and honestly, I've had, like, true confession. Uh, I worked uh, all kinds of different, this is a six-point sermon, this is a four-point sermon, maybe I'll call it. And I just, like, I don't even know what point sermon this is. I don't know. I'm just going to, like, talk about this stuff. <laughs> I lost track in my notes. Am I, like, point four or four? Anyway, so I'm just going to walk through it. I Hopefully, you'll get some, some, some points out of this. Uh, but I just want to, like, bring in with verses 16 and 17. The first thing I want you to see is that first transformation that takes place is that the strong and mighty are humbled. And that is a transformation that must take place before all the other stuff that I'm going to share with you takes place. So let's look at verse 16 and 17. In that day, the mighty Egyptians will become weaklings. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. And the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. So it says here that the mighty Egyptians, this world power, is going to become like weaklings. And literally in the English language there, it says, um, in the English language, in the Hebrew language, it says uh, they will become like women. Like the Spanish version, the funny thing is I'm going to preach the sermon in Spanish, so I have to like read between both texts. And the Spanish section says, serán débiles como las mujeres. 
It, that's a literal translation of what it's saying. They will, Egypt will become weak like women. Now, that is not saying anything derogatory about women. So let's take it into the cultural context of that moment. We're talking about war here. We're talking about mighty soldiers in Egypt that were expected to be brave in battle, right? And God is saying here, the prophet is using the language of saying, no, they're going to become weak. They're going to become weaklings. They're going to become, their hearts are going to become faint and they're not going to want to fight anymore. They're going to be exhausted. Their strength is going to be zapped. Okay, that's what Isaiah is saying here. So the first transformation that takes place, which would have been something incredibly jarring to the audience, to the Israelite audience, uh, is that Egypt's transformation will take place from a place of strength to a place of humbleness a place of fear and trembling before the Lord. And I think we can all see that there's a biblical principle here, right? As we read our Bibles, especially the New Testament, Jesus made it very clear, right, that God judges and he's up against the proud and the strong. Anybody that thinks that they're proud, they're strong, that they're almighty, the scriptures say God is against those people, those people groups, but God is the God of the weak. And so if we want to see any kind of transformation, family, if we want to see any kind of transformation in our church, in our city, in our country, in our world, we need to know that the first step has to be humbleness. The mighty will be humbled. And so repentance, to me, is number one. It's always the first step. Recognition of that. So no, transfer, no transformation will take place without that. Now look at verse 18. Um, it says once again, in that day. And like Josh mentioned, this, in this little passage here, the six times it will say, in that day. Verse 18 says, in that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Almighty God. One of them will be called the city of the sun. So a couple of things here. First and foremost, if you were an Israelite, your view of like God of Yahweh would be like God, Yahweh is our God. He's our deliverer, he's our protector, he's our provider, he's our God. We're the only ones that worship Yahweh. Isn't it so beautiful? God is telling Israel, I'm not just your God, I'm the God of all humans. I am the God of all humans. I care for all humanity. I'm the God of the nations. So I just want to tell you, God is not just the God of the Christians. God is not just the God of the Christians. He is the God of the Hindus, the Muslims, the atheists, the Buddhists. God cares about every single human in this world. And aren't we glad about that? Yes. Aren't we so glad about that? So this transformation is not just a transformation that's going to take place in Israel. It's going to start taking place in the other nations. And so here it says that there are five cities in Egypt that are going to speak the language of Canaan. I love this powerful image. Um, and the more I've been uh, meditating on this, especially with our Spanish expression, and so many of our Venezuelan immigrant friends and families are coming in, this is a big deal for them. Any immigrant community that you touch, touch point with as a first-generation community, language is the number one thing that they want to preserve. Basically, if they, they feel like if their kids lose the language, they have lost basically their core identity for where they come from. They have lost their 
culture and their values. And so this is why like so many of our parents and our friends are really nervous about, okay, being in America is a great opportunity, but like the cost could be gigantic if we lose our identity and we lose ourselves. And so like when you're saying here that they, they will speak the language, it's not just like communication. We're not talking about just communication. We're talking about everything that, that, that identifies a person with who they are. And so when it says here that the Egyptians are going to be speaking the language of Canaan, it's not just, again, just talking about they're going to just learn a new language. It's like, basically, they're going to be transformed completely. This is a fundamental shift in the identity and alignment of their lives. So this is really powerful. So it says that they will start speaking the language of Canaan. And then look at verse 3, the third point here. It says that they will swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. So again, this is not just that the Egyptians are going to ask Yahweh worship to their religion. You know, they have all these other gods, and they're going to like incorporate that into their, into their religion model. No, no, no. It's saying they're going to adopt Yahweh as their only God. That's crazy, right? And I love, uh, I'm not even going to talk too much about this because uh, Emmanuel has preached an incredible sermon last year. Uh, probably his, his first or second sermon, I don't know if you were here, he preached about allegiance, like faith is allegiance, and he made out the whole case as to like why allegiance to God is really the best way to express and explain what faith is all about. So I really encourage you to listen to that sermon. But basically what he's saying is, if the mighty are humbled, Egypt, if they're truly humbled and repent, here's some tangible evidence that's of that repentance. Okay? And so it looks like they're actually now speaking the language of Canaan, and they're now having allegiance to God Almighty. They're turning to God. This is really the language of the Old Testament of saying they have converted to the ways of God. Allegiance. Now look at uh, verse uh, 19. The transformation is internal and external. Look at it. In that day, once again, that phrase, there will be an altar to the Lord in the name, in the heart of Egypt, and a monument to the Lord at its border. I love that. What that is saying is, in the heart of Egypt, in the middle of that nation, there are going to be altars for worshiping Yahweh at the heart of it. That's like an internal change that's taking place in the nation, an internal place that takes place in our hearts when we give our lives to Jesus. But then it's not only just that, it's not just internal, it's external. At the borders, they're gonna put monuments and altars, letting the other nations know, letting the public, letting the outside world know that there's something internal that has changed. Isn't that beautiful? The language of conversion and change. Pillars are being elevated to the Lord at the border. Look at verse 20. There is a beautiful reversal, role reversal. It will be a sign, these this monuments, these altars, uh, and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and he will rescue them. This is incredible. Remember the story of, e- of Israel in Exodus, who are the oppressors in the Exodus story? Egypt, right? 
And who is the oppressed? Israel, right? And Israel cried out to the Lord in their slavery, and God answered Israel's, Israel's cry, right? So if you were a Jew, you knew that Yahweh is the God of Israel, and he answers our prayers. Think about how jarring again it would be for an Israelite to hear this passage, where now all of a sudden the oppressor is the oppressed. Egypt is going to find itself, it says the scriptures, someday as oppressed. They're going to be so oppressed, just like the Israelites were hundreds of years earlier. And Egypt, in their middle of their oppression, are going to cry out to God, just like Israel did. And guys, and God answers their prayer. That is, to me, one of the most beautiful examples, as I've been meditating on this, that God is faithful to his promises. Because God has said, anyone that cries out to me for deliverance and help, I will, I will run to them. And we like to think that's Christians. That's what a Jew would have said. And God is so true to his word that even when enemies cry out to him, God is faithful and he answers and he heals them and he delivers them. Isn't that beautiful? So God is true to his word. And I don't know where you stand today. I don't know if you're feeling oppressed and you're in need of deliverance. I just want to let you know, cry out to the Lord. He is faithful. He will deliver you. He will help you. Cry out to him. And then look at this. This is so magnificent. Second half of verse 20 says, When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender. At least that's what the NIV says. And he will rescue them. And uh, I, uh, a couple of months ago, I did a, a little, I wanted to like do a little study on what are the words savior and defender? What's the Hebrew behind those two words? Because in the English, it's got two words in there. And I was surprised to find out that actually, just, that's actually one word. The translators use two words to define one word, okay? And you will not be surprised when I tell you the Hebrew word that is behind those two words. The Hebrew word is Moshiach. God will send them a Moshiach. God will send to Egypt a Messiah. A savior and a defender. Isn't that beautiful? And just another little, little thing here. Uh, the book of Judges, the word for judge is actually this word. I don't know why we translated Judges, but it's actually like little messiahs. So, so when Israel's crying out to, to God and, and, and the book of Judges and God sent a, a judge to save them, it's actually saying a little messiah, a little messiah. That's supposed to be like a little example of like, here's how I'm going to deliver you when the real, the great messiah comes. Okay. But again, the main point that I'm trying to make here today is the Messiah is for the nations. It's not just for the Christians. It's for all. And so God has promised that anybody that cries out to him, he will send a Messiah, a Savior and a Defender, a Rescuer. Amen? Okay. We're coming down to the end here. Verse 23. In that day, again, he says... There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. 
Okay, this is the first time we hear the word Assyria. So Egypt and Assyria are the two world-dominant powers. They hate each other. They're scheming against each other. They're trying to control every other nation to gain advantage against each other. And it says that there will be a highway between both of those nations. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. Sounds like immigration. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt, Assyria, and a blessing on the earth. I love that picture. A highway of reconciliation. What does a highway symbolize? That there's a free flow. There are no barriers between those two nations. There's no barriers between those two enemies anymore. They have been removed. There's a free flow of people from one place to the other. Relationships are restored. And there's highways of mutual blessings. And so in this beautiful passage, in the middle of judgment chapters, there's this beautiful in one day vision where the two biggest oppressors that the world had ever known up to that point will be mutually worshiping Yahweh alongside of Israel. Israel will just be the third rail. And they all will be united in worshiping our God. Verse 25, and I'll finish with this, is an echo to Genesis 12, chapter 3. If you know Genesis 12, there's the Abrahamic covenant, the first time that we meet Abraham. And, and God promises to Abraham, and he says that through your line, through your descendants, Abraham, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Okay? And look at what God has to say. Look at the language that God uses, again, for the other nations. He says, the Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Wait a minute, what? What? Egypt is called my people? I mean, if I'm a Jew, I'm pissed. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you took us out of Egypt because they were oppressing us. We were in Mount Sinai. You told us that we were your people. Wait a minute. No, but I had a promise that I made to Abraham. <laughs> the supersedes Mount Sinai. I'm the God of all people. And so Egypt, you're my people. It's this language of relationship. The enemy is in relationship with Yahweh. And Assyria, the other enemy, it says, you're my handiwork. Literally, you're the work of my hands. That's an echo to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God is creating. And he, who is, what, when, when he says that God used his hands, what was he creating? He was creating Adam. In Assyria, you're the work of my hands. Like, I want an intimate relationship with you. I'm the God that wants to have an intimate relationship with you. And then it says, and Israel, of course, you're my inheritance. Yes, you are. I love you, Israel. Yes, I made a promise to you. You're my, my chosen nation. That hasn't changed. I'm faithful to my word. I told you that you are my special people. Yes, you are my inheritance. I think it, in, uh, in Spanish it says, my, mi posición más preciada. My most precious possession is what it says. And so God has united all three of these nations, symbolizing the world. Okay? And so 
How much time do I have? I don't even know where. Five minutes. Perfect. <laughs> Good. Um, so, so, so this is why we have chosen this passage. I, I hope I just kind of opened up the window for you a little bit for you to kind of explore that more. But this is why we have chosen this to be the, the main passage out of which we believe God's calling us for the next three years to get really serious about like becoming an expression of this. Again, this prophecy was made 2,800 years ago. And we are not foolish enough to think that over the next three years we're going to fulfill it. But I think what we're saying as a church, as your elders, we're saying, but boy, do we desire to have this, an expression of this in our city, that Providence would be the, the place where like, the city could go like, there's this, like, this, this thing that's happening in this church that we cannot even explain, and there's like, these highways of like, relationship between groups of people that like, would normally not be together, and like, like, they seem to love one another and like, mutually worshiping God together, and like, what's going on in there? Okay? Like, that's kind of like what we want to go after for the next three years with, like, real clarity. Amen? Um, and so I'm excited about this. Uh, I've been talking to and I'm going to be preaching this sermon to our Venezuelan Spanish expression today. And I know that they are going to be excited about this. And they're excited about being this one expression, this one church together with you all. And over this next three years, we're going to be very intentional about like creating like those spaces where we can truly be that one church. If at the end of three years, we're just three different churches, like that would be a failure in my mind. I don't think that's what God wants. And so we're going to fight and we're going to work really hard for this. But that's going to also take a lot of like full day parties. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> uh, anyways, in the, in the next two minutes, just want to give you a quick update on what's happening with our Spanish expression. Um, so a couple of things are happening right now. We are, we usually for transportation, pick up about 50 to 60 people. And I think last time I, before I got to preach, it was like, we had like 90 people going like, we need a ride. So like, holy crap. Uh, and I'm not there driving the bus right now. So pray that we can coordinate all of that. But it's really exciting. Uh, we have people are wanting to come to Providence. Most of them are in, in shelters around the city. You've probably read the newspapers around that and the, and the TV, the, the news. Um, but our... Our, uh, our one o'clock expression is growing, and we're just seeing just a beautiful spirit that is there. Um, last year, I mentioned at the end of the year in our business meeting, we did 60 apartments uh, over 12 months. Just to give you a little bit of context of what's happening the first two weeks of the year is we are, uh, we have seven apartments going on right now. Okay. Well, I say man, but man, like, whoa. <laughs> uh, yes. The need is humongous. There are so many uh, Venezuelan and South American neighbors that are like about to be homeless uh, because they're gonna get kicked out of shelters and there's just this urgency and this immediacy. Uh, and so we as a church are really working hard to do our part. We cannot solve the problem for everybody, but we definitely feel like God is opening doors for us to possibly double what we did last year and we're certainly on pace for that. Uh, and so just be in prayer about that. Uh, we need finances for those apartments. Uh, and just we just need like, yeah, volunteer help to help us with like uh, moving beds. You know, sometimes we have to like our ideal is not just open the door and be like, hey, here's a carpet and go and sleep in there. Sometimes we've had to do that. But our ideal is like at least there's some beds and some kitchen stuff and a couch in that apartment. Uh, so we see that as an increasingly important ministry that is probably going to have to be double in size from what we did last year if we're going to meet the 
the needs of the city um, in that. And then lastly, probably the other thing that um, since the last update I gave you back in early December is uh, God has done a miracle. I call it a miracle. It's just not, I'm, I'm really in awe of what God is doing. Um, there is um, a pathway for any Venezuelan that arrived in, in the United States before July 31st. Um, Venezuelans have a thing called TPS, Temporary Protective Status, where if they can prove they, are, they arrived here before that date and they've been continually living here, uh, they can actually get working papers and a social security card for 18 months or 24 months. I know, it's amazing. And hopefully that's going to get renewed every two years. You know, it's not guaranteed, but it's like it's an incredible opportunity for our friends. Uh, the problem with that is, well, the opportunity is there. It costs about $2,000 to $2,500 per person to get a lawyer to actually get the TPS. So it's like, awesome opportunity. You might as well tell me, like, I don't have it because I don't have the money, right? Especially if you're a mom with two kids, you got to come up with, like, almost 7500 bucks. And so... For September, October, November, like Courtney, Heidi, and I have been talking like, how do we help our friends? Like, we read 250-page legal documentation. We were like, maybe we'll become like mini lawyers. And it's like, oh, my God, I don't know. I can't do that. Uh, <laughs> so in another lifetime, I'll probably figure that out. But, uh, but here's what happened. Wow, God provided, and the state of Colorado has given us some money for us to hire some, like, dangerous maybe paralegal help uh, because we're none of us are paralegals but we're uh, we're aiming to be paralegals uh, but God's provided for a way for us to actually like be trained to do a lot of the, the heavy lifting uh, and so the last two weeks we've been in our friends na- uh, apartments literally looking for receipts under the bed and in the closet and all that because we got to like prove that each one of them has been here in the country and there's very specific things they have to do but we're excited to do that because if we can do that for them, then we have about 20 different lawyers around the city that have said, if you do this pre-work, I'll take an hour of my time and I'll help you finish out the rest of the paperwork, yeah. right? And, and not only that, the feds have come and said, if you guys do all of this and the lawyer f- does the paperwork, we'll come here and we'll do the biometric uh, fingerprints, which is a big thing that they all need to do. And there's pictures, they gotta take it. And so like, we're looking to like, at the end of this month, try to get at least 100 to 120 of our Venezuelan friends to like do all of the paperwork for free. Yes. Like for free, right? And it will change their lives. And so like, anyway, so there's just so much exciting things happening. Like this is like every month is a new opportunity. Uh, but those are the types of things that we're doing in the hopes that again, in that one day now, picture to the city and it's making a big splash. Providence is like in the radar of Every government official, city council person, nonprofits, and I'll end with this. I know I went a little extra, but um, this, like for example, this uh, TPS thing. There's like three other nonprofits who have that have staff. They have like dedicated staff to like help do all this TPS paperwork. They all got the same grant that we did. Um, and as of like last night, there was about 160 Venezuelans that have been. Um, like handed off to a lawyer, and 75 of those are ours. And we're doing that on nice mornings and weekends. We're not just, this is not our job. But this is a one-day thing. This is a God thing. Like when the city and the state goes, how does Providence do How do they do it? Because we love our people. It's expensive love. It's relationship. Like we're in their living rooms looking under the bed. 
If you're in the office over here, like, hey, do you have that receipt? He's like, no, I don't. Okay, well, come back later. No, we're like, let's go find the freaking thing now. Okay, anyways, let's go. <laughs> Ciao. <laughs>